morning we want to finish our uh, study in uh, chapters 13 through 17. The summer is about gone, and so we've got to finish this unit. And uh, we will uh, wrap up our time together by reading verses 20 to 26. It's not only the last part of this unit, uh, but it's also the last segment of this chapter, which is a, a prayer of our Lord. He's praying for us. He's praying for His people. And we've, we've looked at what He has uh, said to us in this prayer. The plan is after this week, starting next week, Lord willing, we will do a study in Psalm 119. We'll spend about 23 uh, weeks. Uh, we won't do it all together. We'll spend about half of that up through the end of November. We'll break uh, for Christmas, and then in January, we'll jump back in and do the second half of Psalm 119. But for now, we are in John 17, beginning at verse 20. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the, the word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them uh, and I in them. You may be seated. Thank you, Father, for your word. We know that there is no word like your word. And so our prayer as we begin to look at your word is is that the same spirit who moved John to write these words would now be at work in our midst and particularly in our hearts, that you would now use your word to perform your work in our hearts this morning. Change us, for we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've looked at this prayer of chapter 17 in three segments. This is now our third segment. Primarily, uh, in the first segment, Jesus prayed primarily for himself, and and yet I don't mean that in a selfish way, 
But then in the second segment, he prayed for his people. And now in this third segment, he prays from another dimension or from another angle concerning his people. And, um, uh, and, the, and, and, and if you noticed it, particularly when you looked at verse 21, when you looked at verse 22, when you looked at verse 23, uh, there, there is a repetitive pattern going on in the petition that Jesus is offering up to his Father. The focus of Jesus' petition in this unit is for, around the notion of oneness or unity. And there's two things I want us to note, primarily in verses 20 to 23, we'll note something of what I would call the seriousness of our unity. Us being one is a serious matter. The second thing, from primarily from verses 24 through 26, is what I would call the source of our unity. If, if unity is such a serious thing, where will people like you and I uh, uh, receive this, that we might live in it? And so he specifies that in verses 24 through 26. Well, first of all, the seriousness of our unity. And I say seriousness because uh, as Jesus prays in verse 21, 22, and 23, uh, either he is stumbling over what to pray and therefore haplessly repeats himself, now, I've done that in prayer. Can't think of what to say next, and so I just say the same thing again. I mean, you think, you're thinking, you're doing it in prayer. You do that when you preach, you know. Uh, well, okay, I, I probably do. But, um, but, but here, Jesus is not repeating himself. Look at how he repeats himself. He's not repeating himself because he just can't think up what to say next. Um, he says there in verse uh, 21, the very first segment of verse 21, that they may all be one. And, and then he says in the last part of verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. And then he says toward the, uh, toward the front part of verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. You see a pattern? Jesus is zoned in in this prayer on a big matter. It's a serious matter. He wouldn't have brought it up. I mean, he's, this is on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. In just a matter of hours, he will be apprehended. And in a few hours after that, he will be hanging on the cross. And, and so we are getting the last conversations that he is engaged in with his closest followers. It's, uh, if you would, the, the last thing on his mind. Not in a, in a Porter Wagner, Dolly Parton kind of way. But, but it, is, it, is, it, is, it is what is dear to his heart at this moment. This is dead seriousness. The burden of this prayer is for the oneness or for the unity of his people. The people whom he will purchase in just a few hours with his own precious blood. A people who will be from every tribe and every tongue and, and every nation. Nevertheless, they will all be his people. And he prays that they will live in the oneness of what he is obtaining for them at the cross. And yet I say this is a serious matter. I say this is a, I say this is a big matter. Uh, not simply as an end in itself. Why is it important for local churches 
to live together in harmony or in unity, just so that we can we could just simply quarantine ourselves from a hostile world and and live in the niceties of each other's presence. Well, not that we're opposed to such a concept, but there is more at stake here than just simply let's be one as an end in itself. No, there is a a massive uh, being us being one us. Living out of the realization of this prayer is to be a massive, powerful means to an end. I think there's two things that, that are found in this segment, particularly verses 20 to 23, uh, that, um, that speak to, two different aspects that speak to why unity is such a serious matter. First, the first one we'll deal with, is our realization of the oneness or the unity that Jesus is praying for here is so that we, his one people, would reveal the truth of the gospel. The second thing we'll come back to in a little bit is that we would reflect the beauty of the Godhead. But first of all, why is it a big deal? Why is it a serious matter? Uh, Why is it that Jesus is repetitively praying that his people would be one? Why? Because he alludes to a purpose, a result of us being one here, and that is that we might reveal the truth of the gospel. Look at what he says now in 21 again, that really the, the last part of verse 21 where he says, so that, so that. In other words, I pray that they may be one. Well, why? So that. You see the resultant or the purpose of that? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. kind of get ahead of myself here, but stepping back for a second, in verse 20, he said something interesting. He's been praying for his people, which on the one hand were those people who were in the immediate proximity of him at that moment, in that circle that he was praying for. But he shifts there in verse 20, and he prays that his people would understand that he's got more people. He's got more people than that little cluster in that little room at that moment. He's got other people in the world that need to be rescued out of the world just like his people who were in that circle were. And he says that they, they too uh, may, be, may, may be pulled out of the world and, and, and brought into the fellowship of, of God. And, and then he says, so that they, so that the people who are in close proximity to Jesus and the people who are still yet to be reached for Jesus, that the whole composite of them may be one. Or he says in verse 23, after he said that they may become perfectly one, the next phrase is, so that. Again, kind of insinuating result or purpose of this serious need for oneness, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, even as Jesus is praying, he's educating his people. He's instructing his people. He's he's sharing his heart with us so that we would take up the task of the seriousness of our unity and realize that the, the reason our unity is so serious is because there is a purpose or, uh, if you would, a, a mission that's attached to us being one. 
God's people, God's people who gather in God's churches, are to be instruments that testify verbally of the gospel. But our verbal testimony of the gospel needs validation. And the validation of the truthfulness of the testimony, the verbal testimony of our gospel as to its effective truthfulness is how that gospel has worked its way into our own hearts and souls so that we now are a people who live to demonstrate that truthfulness as we live together as brothers and sisters as one. Corporately, when we gather and do church together, together, when we gather and do church together, uh, we are giving a corporate testimony about Jesus. That he is just as he said. He come from the Father and he's come to do the Father's will and he's, he's come to accomplish the Father's purposes He's come to rescue a people, and and we now, that rescued people, get to be a corporate body, a family, and, and by how we live together as a corporate body or family, we become the, the demonstrations of the truthfulness and the power of the gospel. I like how Paul frames this. In Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live together in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul has, has admonished his, God's people to do? That, that we would look to, the, to God and receive the mercy and the grace we need. Why? So that we would live together in harmony, in accordance with Jesus Christ. Why? So that with one voice, now the context of what Paul has alluded to in Romans 15 is not a naive Pollyanna context. No, the context of of what he just said in verses 5 and 6 of Romans 15 starts back in chapter 14. And what he's acknowledged in those two chapters is living together in harmony uh, amid variated consciences on assorted matters is a challenge. Where our consciences, our consciences differ on non-essential matters, one side cannot despise the other side, and the other side cannot judge that side. No, what, what each side are told to do, they're not told to obliterate their consciences, but what each side is told to do is to welcome each other as unto the Lord. Why? Well, it says, so that together with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's hard. 
It's hard to, to strive to live together in unity or in harmony with each other when you and I don't see eye to eye on every jot and tittle. It doesn't require, living together doesn't require violating our consciences. Nor does it require forcing another to submit to our conscience. But what it does require is for us to each submit ourselves to obeying Scripture. That in the midst of our variated consciences, we would strive to live together in harmony Because that's what Jesus prayed for, and that's the modus operandi by which the gospel gets promoted and declared and demonstrated. Now, what that means practically is you and I have to ever be triaging. Christians are tempted to fail to cherish deeply the the wonderful truths that are meant to unite us with other believers in those wonderful truths. But we cannot allow ourselves to be tempted to cherish divisive things instead of the wonderful things that unite us. For when we pick the wrong things to unite us, they actually, as it turns out, just simply divide us. And when we pick the wrong things to unite us, that in turn just divides us, and ironically, we are being extremely worldly at that moment. We're not being godly at that moment. Listen to what James says in chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, is unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, where do those exist? In our hearts. Where those exist in our hearts, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The world has never, been had, to, has never had to been taught how to be divisive. Because what percolates around in the hearts of the worldly is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And see, what, what we are to be is testimonies of those things no longer rule our hearts. We've been pardoned of said sins and errors, but we are also been given new hearts that wish to renounce vestiges of, uh, of, of 
envy and selfish ambition. We, we wish, wish to live in an entirely different direction, an entirely different trajectory. By the grace of God, we now are displaying by our interest in, our commitment to, our striving uh, for living together in harmony. We are demonstrating that the gospel is true. A divided world does not need to be shown how the church could show them an even better way and deeper way to be divided. They got that down already. We can teach them about that. But what we are afforded the opportunity to do is to demonstrate the power of the gospel to change our hearts as individuals, and to bring us together as a corporate family. Uh, A divided and hostile world needs to see something different. And if it sees something different, it might listen to what we're saying. Suppose I uh, took a side job, and um, I wanted to use a little bit of my time in the sermon this morning to uh, hawk uh, a tonic that I've now that I'm now selling. It's an elixir, actually. Um, that um, I guarantee you, the claims are true. I mean, it's been scientifically demonstrated. And you know, science never lies, but it's been scientifically demonstrated that it's guaranteed to make you seven foot three. But wait, if you, if you buy before noon today, before the sermon is over, if you buy before noon today, you will get a second bottle, which I guess that would make you 14.6, I guess, I don't know, but 7.3. But, but, well, plus you've got to pay separate shipping and handling on that. But, uh, but, uh, but, I mean, think about this, folks. Think about this. Unless you are just really committed to place yourself in debt even deeper than you may already be, would you buy, I mean, let me, let me get a little bit closer, you might want to take out a tape measure. Would you buy from me a tonic that is guaranteed to make you seven foot three? Well, let me, I know I'm standing up here. I'm almost seven foot. Down. Would you buy from me a tonic that would guarantee to make you seven foot three? Now, if Freddie was selling it, you'd be like, okay, he's getting there. He, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking maybe it might be working. Just a little bit at a time, but he's getting there. But would you buy that from me? No. Why wouldn't you buy that from me? Because you'd say, dude, if that stuff works as good as you say it does, why don't you take a few swigs your own self? Do you see what's at stake with this prayer? That they may be one. That they may be one. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world would believe that you sent me. The other thing that he touches on in these verses is not only how our oneness reveals the truth of the gospel, but the other thing he alludes to in those verses is how our, our oneness and the oneness he prays for is to reflect the beauty of the Godhead. I won't go into that just for the sake of time, but, but all throughout there as he's prayed that they may be one just as we are one. 
that, that, my, that my people would look a lot like me. Me, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're one. We've always been one. We've been eternally, forever one. At the the heart of the reality of the universe is a father who loves his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's that's the center of a reality. And by the way, that's the center of the Christian message. So from another angle, he's saying, so that when my people live as one, when they live in harmony with each other, they're just simply reflecting the reality of the Godhead, which takes us to our second point quickly. We've looked at the seriousness of our unity. Now let's look at the source for our unity. And in a sense, really kind of already tipped my hand maybe as to where, where, we're, where we're going. But uh, because we're to be one as Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are, are one. But, but at verse 24, Jesus pivots in his petition. Um, and he moves beyond that they may be one, that they may one, that they may become one. And, and, and now he provides us for what I think is greater clarity upon the source of our unity. In other words, while we are to be people who take serious and strive to live together in unity, you and I are not to create, we are, we cannot create the kind of unity that's being specified here. It's got to come from above, and guess what? That's where it comes from. It, it's provided for us. Verse 24, he says there, um, Well, Father, I desire that they, may, that, that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Just kind of circle that notion for a minute. To see my glory that you have given to me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. The first, the first thing he does in kind of a two-step sequence here is in showing the source of, of our unity. He says, first, Father, my prayer is that they would be with me, I'd be with them, and that they would see something of my glory. And then I think he specifies what he means by glory in this immediate sentence here. The glory meaning just how much you have always loved me. Father, I, I want them to see this so that their, their, their focus, their gaze is enthralled and captivated by this. That this would be a jaw-dropping experience for them. I pray that they're one, but Father, I pray that they're one because they see something of your love for me. And that they would be blown away by what they see. The father loves his son how much? The father has loved his son for how long? The father loves his son that deeply? That massively? Do you see why I suggest that the center of the of reality of the universe is a father who loves his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. I've been talking to an individual uh, for the last several weeks um, who is not sure where he stands with Christianity. He's, in fact, he said, don't buy it. And, and, and the, the sadness that lands on my heart is that he's not rejecting 
uh, the true biblical rendition of Christianity. He's, he's rejecting a sad, pathetic cultural adaptation for Christianity. One that I reject too. The, the, the heartbeat of Christianity is, is found first and foremost, what's going on with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What's going on with them? And for eternity, they've been in a love feast with each other. Love is the greatest power in the universe. That's not because Harry Potter said that. It's because that's what the Scripture teaches. That's not a cheap shot against Harry Potter. He does say that in the first book. He says, Lord, Father, that they may be one, that, that, may, be, that they may be one. And, and so that they may be one, that first of all, they would see the love between the Father and the Son. But it gets even better or deeper than that. This is truly a, but wait, there's more moment here. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name. Words, I told them all about you. And I will continue to make known to them your name. Interesting. He's leaving. Reference to the Holy Spirit here, whom he's told us about in this unit, isn't he? I will continue to make it known. And yet, specifically, here's how he lands. That, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see, he took things a little bit deeper in verse 26. He says in verse 24, Oh, Father, that they may see the, how glorious your love for me is. And then he kicks it up a notch in verse 26 and says, And, Father, not only would they see that as kind of like an outside observer. Whoa, I'm over here, way far over here, and I see a father loving a son for all eternity. That's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. But that's not where he ends. He doesn't end with just simply us watching that from a distance. What he is saying in verse 26 is that this love that the father has between the son and the son that has for his father, that we would be taken up into that, that we would be caught up into the love between a father and son. In essence, that we would see that we are loved by the Father with the same kind of love that he has always had for his Son. This is not a skimpy love that the Father has for creatures like you and I. This is not a halfway love. I love them, but boy, they are knuckleheads, ain't they? And so you kind of like keep your distance because you never know when the knucklehead will be a knucklehead again. This is the father going all in with the same love he's had for us. So Jesus is the father. I pray that the love that you've had for me, that they, that they would now be, that they would now be the recipients of that love. You see, that's the source of our striving together for unity. The demonstration of our unity is sourced in the reality, in living in the reality of God's love for us. The most decisive and transformative 
transformative reality in our lives is the genuine experience of the love of the Godhead pulsating in our hearts. That the Father loves the Son. That the Father loves you and I with the same love that he has always loved his Son. What I'm saying is that, that, that love that the Father has for his Son, that love is to be the most decisive and defining and transformative experience in our lives. It's not our ethnicity that defines us. It's not our social economic status that defines us. It's not our gender that defines us. It's not our community standing that defines us. It's not our political persuasion that defines us. We live our lives God-referentially. Our lives Lives are to display what is first and foremost pulsating in our hearts. The rich, deep, abiding, eternal love of God the Father for his Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says in Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in Love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When God's full love, the love He has for His Son, settles in our hearts. Our hearts are happy. No matter what the tumult is, situationally or circumstantially, our hearts can be happy. We are filled with the fullness of God, filled with the fullness of God's love in Christ. And as we live in that reality, that resets how we live in regard to each other. We share in common what is the most decisive and defining and transformative reality of the universe. The love of a father for his son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. We are to give testimony to that beauty and that glory. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for how your word shows us and how your word works in us. And our prayer, Father, is that as we see the love of a father for his son and how that's been shown to us through the death of Jesus, that we might respond this morning by loving you and by loving all that you love, all whom you love. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.